Welcome to Vineyard Brisbane West podcast. It's great to have you with us. In this series, we dive deeper into the narratives we hold about God. Narratives play a fundamental role in forming our identity, both for the positive or for the negative. So join us over the coming weeks as we explore the character of God displayed in the life and mission of Jesus. So today we're going to look at God is generous and you might think, yeah, know that one. I could switch off now. I'll get my phone out and start checking the emails. But if we really know it, we will live according to it. And that's the test, isn't it? Um, so we're going to do some uh, looking around at what we actually believe and whether it lines up with uh, who God is. So um, somewhere we can anchor this in Scripture is in that wonderful passage in Ephesians 1. I've just picked out verses 3, 7, and 8 here. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us. So um, you can see how that's been mined by many a worship leader for um, understanding the nature and the character of who God is. And it's all there in Paul's wonderful introduction to Ephesians. And so if we're looking for, I guess, an expanded definition of God being generous, uh, God lavishes his love, salvation, and favor upon us. He, gives, he loves being generous to all his children, and it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And do you know how many people I find, when they pray for the kingdom, they feel like they're having to twist God's arm up his back, like, please, you know, please do this, please heal me, or please make something work for my favor. Um, it really isn't that. God wants to give us the kingdom. He's done everything on his side to give us the kingdom. But he left us with some instructions and he said, pray. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. And I find I don't pray that enough in my life. And, uh, you know, um, that's essentially what we're doing with all of our lives is seeing more of the kingdom break in, more of his will being done. Because not everything that happens is his will. And Helen touched on that last week. I'm not going to go there today, but um, God is generous. So we're going to work through this parable. And as we do, we're going to get um, maybe a little bit challenged in what we think is fair. Um, because it's one of those parables that gets under your skin and leaves you thinking, wow, okay, that is pretty radical. So starting in uh, verse 1, Matthew 20. I've got it on the screen here, but you can follow along in your own version. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now, who is the landowner? That's really important before we carry on in this story that we've got to understand what Jesus is talking about. The landowner is Father God. So that's really important. Who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing in the marketplace. So they've started their day about six and three hours later, he's gone back for more workers. 
because um, this is a big job that needs, uh, needs doing. And he said to them, uh, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Uh, when he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same thing. And about five o'clock, he went out and he still found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing around here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought that they'd receive more. And each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us. Who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Wow, how scandalous is God's grace. But if you were one of those who'd worked the whole day in that scorching sun, and you've got the sunburn and the scratches to prove it, you, you, you might feel like, that does seem unfair. No, nobody wants to enter into that story. Does it seem unfair to you? Would you, would you think, that does seem unfair here. So what, what is God trying to challenge here in us? Because cause we're wired to whoever's worked the hardest should get more. Is that not the way we think? Yeah, so we're hardwired to that process. Yet what Jesus is teaching here in this parable is something totally, totally different. It's about the scandalous grace of God that they agreed at the beginning to get a full day's wage for their work, and they got that. But it was scandalous that somebody got more, and you saw that, uh, that, that, that phrase, and I underlined it, that uh, you made them like us. You made them like us. But isn't the truth that we're all God's children? Isn't the truth that we all deserve to be treated the same by God? But for one thing, if we've placed the value around our working, then we're going to feel it's unfair. But if we place the value around God's generosity, we all deserve the same. And this is what we're going to uncover here. So um, at the time, and this is where this book is really helpful, it highlights that uh, Jewish rabbis were teaching a very similar parable which Jesus would have known of. Uh, a, sky, a scholar called Joachim Jeremias, he notes, in their parable, the punchline is quite different. The owner of the vineyard explains that the last group got the same amount because they earned it. Can you see just how controversial Jesus was trying to be? So he wasn't uh, scared to, uh, um, to challenge the authorities when they were totally wrong. Um, so they worked harder. They did more in a short time than the first group did all day. Now, Jesus tells absolutely the opposite story. 
This is all about the generosity of the landowner, all about the generosity of Father God. And of course, what's, what's, what we're talking about here, we're not talking about a day's wage. We're not talking about working in an actual vineyard. Um, we're talking about the nature of God's grace. And so the basic truth is this, God is generous and his gifts of salvation and eternal life are available to anyone who believes in him and trusts in him. Whether that belief comes at the beginning of a long life or just moments before somebody dies. And of course, we see other scriptures that tell a similar story of this apparent injustice that we all get the same. You think of the elder brother? Do you think of the elder brother? Because he'd gone and he was lost and the father brings him back. And um, what was the elder brother's thing that he said that uh, you've never sacrificed any of those animals for me? Can you see what's going on with these parables? The father says to him, but you're with me always. Everything I have is yours. So we can see how some of these narratives, even though we're talking about 2,000 years ago in a very far away place, a different culture, they still get under our skin because we think, hang on a minute, that does seem a bit unfair, doesn't it? The wild one gets the, uh, gets the big party while the good one, you know, what does he get? Pat on the back and say, oh, by the way, could you bring in the lambs or do a bit more work for me before the day is done. But we're getting to the nature of who God is and he's making sure that nobody misses out. And there is a bias and we're going to see that bias. The bias is to the lost, it's to the hurting, it's to the far off. And if we're in and we've already got it, and if you're a believer here, you know, and you're kind of like frustrated because something or other, well, you're going to see the greatest miracles on the mission field, on the front lines, because they're the peoples who need to know that this God has a real offer of eternal life that we've already taken him up on. So we're going to go with uh, looking at some of these false narratives that sit behind um, this thinking today. And the first one is, uh, I'll just go for a big one off the top here, Australia's fair go meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is the big story. And there's a big story that operates in our society that I can achieve anything by my own individual merit. I can earn more money and improve my social status if I work hard enough. And some of you are looking at that and thinking, but isn't that true? I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but can I just say it's not fair. It's got fairer than it was, but there's some people who work really hard and they don't get any further forward. But what are we talking about to get forward? Is it about owning a jet ski? Is it about owning a boat? Is it about, you know, having a yacht sailing in uh, Sydney Harbour? What are we going for in that? And so we have this whole thing of a fair go, but it's not really fair. And do you know what? It's never going to be fair. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. So the Father's heart is always for his people to be there for the have-nots. And if we're busy worrying about having, we're not caring for the have-nots, are we? So if we chase after these things in this life, we're missing the point. Because Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God above all else. And all these things, clothing, food, the Father knows that you need those. You'll have those as well. But seek first the kingdom. Don't go running after these things, because if we run after those things, then what you're prioritizing is just the same as everybody else. 
you're missing what's really valuable in this life. You have one thing that lasts forever. Everything else is going to decay, including this body. Every cell and fiber of it will decay unless Jesus, well, actually, if Jesus does appear, it will decay and be changed in an instant. So it will decay. So anything else we think we can take with us, we can't. There's just one thing we can take, which is that precious gift that Jesus has given us. And you know what? Now we've been given it. We get the privilege of being able to give it away to others. That's the only thing that matters for all eternity. And if we shift our focus off that, we're not in line with what Jesus is teaching us about the Father. So the hard part is, is that our culture has taught us since we were younger than this, reward systems in school and at home about, you know, um, good behavior, working hard, do your homework. And those things are good, but they're not where it's at. Do you know what I mean? And you can see certain families are drivers and they'll drive their kids to do better than they did. And, and that's okay in a way, but actually the only thing that matters is that we find God and we find what he's got for us. Because what are we saying? That an accountant is better than a farmer? That a refugee has no value? You see, when, when you begin to kind of look at the stories that we believe and we've bought into, it really challenges the makeup of our society. And here's the truth that we have on offer. That eternal life is freely available to all as a gift, regardless of anyone's social status, wealth because of what Jesus has already done. Come buy and eat without any money. It's there at the end of the book. Message hasn't changed. And the very last prayer, come Lord Jesus. Come quick, because this place is pretty bad, and I'm not sure I could do another day here. But come, Lord Jesus. And it's been the prayer of the church for, for 2,000 years. Um, but in between times, for Jesus to come and put things right and get all the values and the stories in align with his, i.e., the kingdom has fully come, um, we have to share this message of hope that we have. And it's a message of hope that people are prepared to hear if they don't have anything or they have a need. But if you feel like you've got everything sorted, guess what? You, uh, you just think it's a stupid message. Um, but for some, they can be saved, as Jesus said. Uh, for God, nothing is impossible. But what we've been trained in in this life is to go for big, bigger, biggest. Fast, faster, fastest. Smart, smarter, smartest. Rich, richer, richest. That's, that's what humanity has been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And the one with the most and the most power gets to oppress and put down those who have the least. This is not the kingdom of God. This is mankind's um, vision of uh, how to put yourself first and get ahead of others. So in God's upside down kingdom, his concern is with the poor, poorer, poorest. And so if we can come into line with him, we'll go to those who are on the margins. A couple of scriptures. Uh, for this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. But also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is drawn to the lowly. And a fascinating study to do is to look at the two words, lofty and lowly, throughout Isaiah. Uh, and then you can pick Jesus 
which of course, most of the Jews couldn't pick Jesus. That wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. They wanted somebody who was lofty, not lowly. We see it here in Jeremiah 9.9. See, your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on a fold of a donkey. So that was quoted in the New Testament as, uh, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. The nature of who God is, um, he's concerned for the outsiders. There's always going to be insiders and outsiders. There isn't this kind of fantasy world where everything's going to be good because otherwise there would be no need for God. And good in our eyes is not good in God's eyes. So our job is to go out there and reach those who are on the outside. It's not to become insiders. And that's another narrative. Seven mountains, if you're into that, run. It's Babylon. If we can get a president in the office of the United States of America, if we can rule the arts, if we could do this, it kind of sounds good, but it looks nothing like Jesus. Did Jesus run for office? You can see all of this false thinking. It's upside down in relation to what Jesus is trying to teach us. He said, take up your cross, daily deny yourself and follow me. So if we're trying to get ahead with the world's methods, we're not going to come into line with, with who Jesus is. And yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have some Christians in, in parliament and to be representing us fairly and representing the poor? That would be great. But what you find is in order to get there often, there's some kind of corruption or deals that need to be done. So I'm not saying, you know, that's a bad thing, but I'm saying if that's your goal, you're missing the point of what Jesus taught us. We're to go and care for the lost and the needy and those who are desperate to hear this message, the ones who are sick. Um, so it really matters how we bear his image and his name. So Jesus, uh, Philippians 2, he took the lowest place and God exalted him to the highest place. And he invites us to do the same. It's about imitating Jesus's attitude of humility. Um, so some more false narratives. I think I'm pushing buttons tonight because there's some ser serious faces looking back at me. But here's another one. God owes me narrative. I can earn God's love, salvation, and favor. God doesn't owe you. Every breath you have is a gift from him. So if you feel hard done by, there's a lie there that you've got to turn around. And in fact, we'll get there at the end, but we have so much to share. And if we can live out of what he's given us, um, I think of Mother Teresa in this, how she just kind of laid herself down for other people. She didn't have a lot of worldly possessions, but whatever she had, she had the love of God, and she just wanted to share that as freely as she could. Um, now, if we really believe God owes us, we've misinterpreted the whole teaching about mercy and grace in the Bible. And uh, if we are looking for God to pay us a wage, well, Romans 6.23 deals with that for us. The wages of sin is death. So if you do feel like God's owed you, that's what you would do. But in his mercy, he's taken that death. And then he says, no, no, I'll take the death. How about you have my life? This is the outrageous, generous nature of who God is. So we have to understand this. This is no kind of um, half-hearted offer. What we have in the gospel is the real deal. Um, so the corresponding truth, I can share about God's free gifts of love, salvation, and favor. 
that's your privilege and honor to do that ministry all your life. Another false narrative, the envy narrative, if only I had what God has given them. Anybody familiar with that one? Oh, I wish, wish, wish I could speak like that person over there, or I wish I could pray and see miracles like that person there, or I wish I had as much money as that person over there. Doesn't get you anywhere. God has given you unique things that nobody else can share. So when you start sharing out of what God has given you, people see you and they're, they're just blown away by the generosity because they're like, oh, this is from you. You've given this. But then you say, yeah, it's, God's given it to me. So it belongs to him. So I'm giving it to you. And people are blown away when you do this stuff. Completely messes with their world. We often swap stories and Dan loves to uh, look for people to kind of uh, uh, catch them out in terms of that they're at the uh, petrol station and for whatever reason they don't have cash or something or they didn't pick up their wallet and I'll pay for that, he says, and he, he pays for the, uh, the fuel and they're like, uh, uh, is that all right? Is that, is that allowed? You know, oh, I'll pay you back. Um, we, we just, our world is not wired this way. So just by very simple things, we can kind of upset the apple cart. So who can I share what God has given me? The uh, scarcity narrative, when I have enough, then I'll give away my money and time. I've seen people do this, people I love, people I respect, people I've learned from who are like, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I want to I wanna give my time to God and serve and, you know, give up my job. And, but, 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 and they never get there. And, of course, Jesus deals with that one, doesn't he? You know, like, well, whatever it is that you're putting between you and God, that's always going to be between you and God. So, so that notion that you haven't got enough, actually, that's a wonderful starting place. Because God wants you just as you are. He's not after your money. He's not even after the skills that he's given you. He's just after you. And when you start to enjoy yourself the way that he enjoys you, that's when some of those things that he's put in you can really then um, find their place in serving others and uh, representing who God is. So the abundance narrative is I lack nothing. God's goodness and love are running after me. And the way we get there is through looking at Psalm 23. So we start with the presence of God. Once we have the presence of God, we have everything. Do you remember Moses? He got God really angry because he said no to him five times. So I don't go beyond four. <laughs> I figured if, if, if Moses could get away with four, I could probably get away with four. But uh, yeah. The whole point in the end, he had a stick. Now, I don't know how confident I'd feel with a stick going before Trump or uh, Albanese or anybody else and asking for God to do something. But uh, somehow that stick was pretty useful. But I don't think it was the stick that really becomes a snake. I think it was God doing whatever he needed to do to bring this about. So um, all we need is God. And so once we have that, as you read through the psalm that David wrote, um, his confidence is that goodness and love are chasing after him all the days of his life. So we can live out of that. And Psalm 23 is actually um, the um, soul training exercise for this week's group. Um, last couple of 
false narratives, the I'm unworthy narrative. Some people don't feel they're worthy of God's favor and love because something's happened in their life and they're not able to take a hold of it. The reality is each one of us has been chosen and we're worthy of the Father's favor and love. So we need to be able to deal with that unworthiness and say, yeah, this really is for you. It's for every one of us. And that's the message that we get the privilege of sharing with folk. Maybe at school you weren't picked out first in the lineups when it came to sports, you know. Maybe you're kind of middling of the line or maybe you're the last one to be picked on every sports team or for a musical or for whatever contest, beauty contest, whatever. But those things, they stay long with us since we were kids. You know, we, we feel that sense of, oh, well, I'm not chosen. I'm not picked. Well, God's picked you first on the team, and he's picked all of us first on the team because he picked Christ. So each of us in Christ, he's the firstborn son. We all get the same rights that Christ gets. So there's no first and last in the sense, and that's where we're coming to. God is resetting the order of the world in terms of justice, and everybody gets picked on the team. Then there's the hyper-grace narrative. Sin doesn't matter now because God's already forgiven me. This is rife in the church today. Whereas the truth is in the Bible, uh, 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, God is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me. This is what we've been doing for these last two weekends, confessing sin. It's hard. It's tiring. It's painful at times. But actually, we don't want to live uh, in a place of not being effective and clean and forgiven. So we need to confess sin. It's not good enough to run, wander around and say it doesn't matter. And there have been people through 2,000 years of the church who've taught heresies around things that don't matter. But if it mattered to Jesus and it's in the Bible, uh, we can't look over it. The consequences of our sin and the sins that go against us are very, very real. When we look around at uh, just even some of these stories over these two weekends of how people have been treated or they've treated others, it's, it's horrendous. God hates sin. And so he hates it so much that he had to take on flesh and take it into his own body to deal with it. Okay, so it's really important that we don't diminish sin. Oh, his love is greater. Yes, his love is greater. Looks like the cross. The horrors of those whips against his back. It looks like that. That's what his love looks like. He's taken that for us. So if you need to confess sin, do it as soon as you can. So our transformation is into Jesus's likeness. And so we need to be diligent in confessing sin. It's going to be with us until we take our last breath because... I'm nothing like Jesus, so uh, I know I've got a long way to go. There's a lot of confession that needs to take place there and a lot of cleansing. So, uh, yet the truth is I'm pure, holy, and blameless. And you're saying, hang on, go and see a psychiatrist or something because those two don't line up. But there's the reality of what God has done. It's a done deal. And what he is doing, we are saved and being saved. So we live out of that place of what he's already done. And we've talked about that earlier this year. Um, The meta-narrative of the Bible is the story of the steadfast love of God that culminates in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of God on behalf of a wayward world. 
Therefore, we should interpret the entire Bible and each of its parts in the light of Jesus. It's noteworthy that every time Paul brings up a story from the Hebrew Bible, he interprets us in the light of Jesus. That's a quote from this chapter. And it comes full circle to an understanding of um, what Jesus has done. And you might remember right at the start of the year when I taught out of Romans 12 about the um, indicative and the imperative. And Romans 12.1 is the axis in the book. All the stuff beforehand in view of God's mercy, what he has done. Then go and do this stuff. Do this, do this, do this. But we get that the wrong way around. We start with the do this, do this, do this, try harder narrative. <laughs> you know, And we can get caught up in an earning mentality. We can think that we have the power to change ourselves. No, it's always because of what God has done. You're now changed and you don't have to live that way anymore. That's always the way it was meant to be written. But it's amazing that for hundreds of years in the church, that people have been beaten over the head with and told to do better. And it's religion. It's not the gospel of grace that we've received. You're pure, holy, and blameless. Therefore, go and walk in that way. Be holy as I am holy. So we've got to change our thinking when it comes to this and do some digging. So the become what you are way of thinking, it seems strange to many of us, but our renewed doing should always float out of our renewed being. We're actually like Jesus already. We've been renewed and we're in Christ. If we're in Christ, we're actually seated in it. How can we be seated in the heavenlies and telling demons to flee like we've been doing recently? If, we, if we're not already made right with God. It's from that place that we're then transformed and sanctified and become like Jesus. Henry Cloud in the book says that uh, if you walk into any given church on a Sunday, you're apt to hear the message that goes like this. God is good. You are bad. Try harder. Anybody heard those kind of messages? It's exhausting, isn't it? This isn't a God is generous, you are stingy, give more kind of message. If you want to give more, I'm okay with that. That's fine. But that's not where it comes from. It's God is generous. He has blessed you enormously without measure. So live out of that blessing. Live like he lives, being prepared to give it away because there is no end to what Jesus has in his storehouse. So the I'm blessed narrative, you hear this one as well around the church. I've earned what I've got, being good and obeying God, so why should I give it up? We get privileged position. If we start to live out of what God's given us, we never get back to the point of giving it all away to receive again. And pride is actually something that is extremely dangerous because it says God opposes the pride, proud, but gives grace to the humble. So maybe you're meeting opposition and you think it's the world or you think it's Satan. It could be God. Check your pride. Take the humble position. And if you do that, you have access to everything. So Jesus, he's demonstrated everything for us. It wasn't just about what he did so that he could kind of do all the legal tick boxes and deal with sin and death and everything else. He's demonstrated the way that we need to walk. We're followers of Christ. We're Christians, little Christs. We're to do the things that he did. And sometimes that means that you are telling demons to flee and other times you're telling cancer to go 
And other times you're on your knees saying, I'm sorry, I shouted at my wife. Should never have done that. Sorry, I, uh, I was ratty on the kids. Somehow those two things sit together in this Christian life. And we need to live out of what God's done for us rather than trying to earn anything that we could do ourselves. Okay. The, this section ends with um, the first will be last and the last will be first. And um, what we realize is that we're blessed to be a blessing. God blesses me abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that I need, I will abandon every good work. So if you're aware of how much more you need, you will always be first in the line. <laughs> There was a space tonight after the worship, and that was a wonderful worship today. It took us right into the throne room. And my dream is to see the front of the church full before anybody's asked anybody to come. Because you want to get right with God. So you might feel far off, not worthy, unqualified. But they're often the first in the line. Because we're aware of how much we need God and we still need them. So I just encourage you to, uh, to live out a narrative of not what you've already got and how can you keep it and maintain it and whether it's some kind of authority or power position, whatever it is, it's always just to give it away, to go and serve. Who will be here last cleaning the toilets at the end of the night? That is the story of the kingdom of God. It's not the way of the world. You know, I wonder who cleans Anthony Albanese's toilet. I doubt it's Anthony. And that's not just one side of politics. I don't, I, I don't think people do that. But I can tell you, I know the church leaders around here and they do that. And they're not doing it for notoriety. They're doing it because it needs doing. And so how do you lead in the kingdom of God? You become the servant of all. So whatever blessing you have. And this last verse here is it given in the context of... Um, um, the Macedonian mission. So the Corinthians, it's a place, Corinth is a place in Greece. Macedonia is a region of Greece. And they were raising funds for a mission to uh, Macedonia. And so the couple of verses before this in 2 Corinthians um, 6 and 7 say, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This isn't to beat you over the head with. It's to saying, you already have it. Even if you have that widow's might and you give that, you give them far more than anybody else who shares out of their riches and their wealth. So we have to change the mindset that we've been blessed, we are like our God, and we can act like him. And do you know what? He's going to back you every time. He's going to back you every time when you are generous to others. And it might be your last meal that you're giving away to somebody else who doesn't have a meal. That just makes it more extraordinary. So the book says, Generosity happens when a person is living from a condition of abundance or when a person is moved by the needs of others. God is generous because he lives in a condition of abundance. His provisions can never be exhausted. And God is moved with compassion because he sees our need. So we need to take on God's attitude, Jesus' attitude of the Father, that when we get there on a mountain with 5,000 men and all their families, 
And he says to us, you feed the Ian. You look around and you think, well, I've got a few cattle at home I could uh, deal with. God's not talking literally with, you know, how do we do this? How do we figure this out? Let's have a committee meeting. He said, just collect up what food we have. What did he do? He gave thanks for it. He blessed it. He acknowledged who God was. And guess what? There were 12 baskets full left over. That's the nature of our God. It's not just some random miracle that he did. And it goes back to the desert and the wanderings where he fed a generation for 40 years, day after day, with the manna they needed to survive. There's nothing in the desert, but God provided. So how much more is he going to provide for us? The Westminster Larger Catechism uh, in 1648 opens with a question and an answer. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. What God wants most is not your money, is not your church attendance, is not your really, really good behavior. It's to see you smile because he knows that you love, that it's because you know how much he loves you. And if you live like that, you're going to make a difference in your world and you won't be able to hand on to your stuff when you see others in need. So here we are. We got there. Thanks for your attention. And uh, this stuff is about replacing lies with truth. So I hit upon lots of things there and I don't expect you to remember it all. But if there was something there that triggered something in you, Oh, I'm not sure about that. Or you felt a resistance, so I, I want to hold on to that. Then this is the time where we're going to do our business with God and we're going to say, do you know what? I might have an issue with envy. I might have an issue with scarcity. I might have an issue with I'm trying harder to be good so that I can get all the toys in this life. Ask God to turn that upside down and replace it with his true narrative of his generosity. He's going to give you... Um, all that you need for this life, but it's all actually all about the next life. He's equipping us for the age to come. So why don't we all stand and we'll read this together. I just ask you to pause and just ask the Holy Spirit, is there something specific I'm believing as a lie? For example, I have to earn your favor and love that you want me to repent of tonight. And when we get to that space, you confess whatever that is. And then uh, if there's somebody related in that who's, you know, trained you or taught you to believe that way, it could be mum and dad or schools or whatever, uh, this world is very seductive. Um, forgive those people and um, then we'll just declare the truth at the end, the opposite of what God has shown you as a lie. So it's going to be quiet now and just ask Holy Spirit, just show us if there's a lie that we're believing that you want us to confess tonight. Something that says that you aren't generous or you aren't enough or that I don't have enough. Okay, from the top. Lord, I confess that I've allowed false narratives to affect the way that I relate to you. I have believed the lie that... 
I forgive. And those who contributed to my forming this false narrative. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for receiving this false narrative, for living my life based on it, and for any way I've judged others because of it. I receive your forgiveness. I renounce and break any agreement with this narrative and any powers of darkness that lie behind it. I choose to accept, believe, and receive the truth that you're incredibly generous to me and everyone and any other truth that he's revealed to you in this message. Amen.